Hey everyone, welcome back to the MHU podcast. We're starting a new series today, one that I'm really excited about because I'm not aware of anything comparable to what we are about to do. I don't think that anyone else has done this. What we are going to be doing in this series is uh, basically a philosophically informed discussion of prayer that's intended to be accessible to people who are not like philosophers or theologians and so forth. So this series is called Does Prayer Work? And today we're going to be hearing from Patrick about uh, the first subtopic within this series. So Patrick, can you tell us uh, what, uh, tell us a little bit about this new topic we're embarking on and what specifically we're going to be talking about today? Right, so let's talk just a little bit first about the topic of this new series, Does Prayer Work? There's an obvious sense in which the answer is yes, and anyone will tell you that it's yes, right? Like, uh, when people pray, there are obvious uh, measurable benefits that psychologists or other kinds of scholars will point to. It, uh, it's relaxing, it is psychologically beneficial, uh, it's, it's good for you. But the kind of thing that we're mostly going to be focused on in this series is like when we pray and we ask God to do things in the world, does that actually uh, have some effect so that God brings it about that those things occur sometimes? So what, what kind of prayer would this be specifically then? Yeah, right. So, uh, you know, sometimes we like to break down prayer into different types, right? Uh, if some of you maybe have been doing discipleship groups, you were looking at like the ACTS model of prayer, uh, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Uh, so we're looking at the supplication part of that, or what sometimes gets called petitionary prayer. Uh, so a petitionary prayer is the kind of prayer where the person praying is asking God to do something, right? And adoration, you're praying a prayer where you're just adoring God. You're, you're being amazed at who God is, and you're telling God about that. Or in thanksgiving, you're thanking God for something. Or in confession, you're telling God about uh, some way that you're not living up to what you, sh you ought to be, and you're asking God for help, maybe. But in a petitionary prayer, you're asking God to intercede uh, and to, to actively bring about a change in the world. Um, okay, so what exactly would you say you mean by prayer working? Right, yeah. So when we're thinking about petitionary prayer and we're asking what does it mean for it to work, we're wondering does it bring about the effects that we're hoping it would bring about. So in a petitionary prayer, we're asking God to do something, right? And we wouldn't think that petitionary prayer in general was working if we thought that none of our petitionary prayers made any difference as to what God did. You know, we're asking him to do something. If he just did whatever he was going to do, regardless of whatever we prayed, then it would seem like, oh, petitionary prayer is not making a difference. It's not working. So for petitionary prayer to work, it has to, in some sense, make a difference as to what God does, right? 
so here's the, the kind of idea that I think we're going to have in place for what it means for a petitionary prayer to work. It's that um, it works just in case sometimes what makes the difference between God's doing something and his not doing that thing is the fact that someone prayed for God to do it. So say it's healing somebody of leprosy. We'll go with the biblical kind of case. Uh, so God, say God wants to heal someone of leprosy and God wants to do it because one of the apostles prayed. But if the apostle hadn't prayed, then God wouldn't have wanted to do it. That would be a case where uh, the petitionary prayer made the, the kind of difference. It worked in the way that we're thinking about. And you're, are you drawing here on Scott Davison? Yeah, so the, the, the kind of account of what it is for a prayer to work here is taken basically from this guy, Scott Davison, um, and he calls it a contrastive reasons account. So, Okay, so in the literature on petitionary prayer, or at least in the philosophical literature on petitionary prayer, there is one big problem that kind of takes center stage, and uh, you're going to tell us a little bit about that today, but roughly the problem is, why pray if God always does what's best? Can you flesh that problem out for us, tell us what's going on there? Yeah, totally. So I'm going to try and give a simple version of the problem, uh, and I'm going to call it the problem of divine goodness. It maybe can help to have a name. Um, but I like to call it that. Scott Davison calls it that as well. Uh, and I think it's a good name because it's a problem that stems from uh, the fact that we think God is good and the fact that it seems like God's goodness constrains what God should, should do, what God is going to do. So take this kind of case. Suppose that a person, uh, let's call her Lucy, suffers an illness And another person, let's call her Maggie, uh, offers a petitionary prayer for Lucy's recovery. And suppose that God answers Maggie's prayers by healing Lucy. So take all that to be true. Lucy is sick. Maggie prays for Lucy. God answers Maggie's prayer by healing Lucy. So either God would have healed Lucy either way. Or God only healed Lucy because Maggie prayed for it. So either, basically, either Maggie's prayer made a difference or it didn't, right? So the first case, it would have just been a coincidence. Yeah, in the first case, God was going to do it anyways, and it's just a coincidence that Maggie prayed for it, and her prayer didn't make a difference. Uh, In the second case, her, her prayer made a difference, and God wouldn't have healed Lucy unless Maggie prayed. So take the case where God would have healed Lucy either way. Then, of course, Maggie's prayer made no difference, and God's healing Lucy is not actually an answer to prayer. Uh, The petitionary prayer in that case is not effective. Well, take the case where God only healed Lucy because Maggie prayed for it. Then, here's the worry that God doesn't seem to be perfectly good because God is bringing about this good state of affairs only because somebody asked him to, and whether or not somebody is asking you to do something doesn't seem like a morally relevant difference. Either it was good for Lucy to be healed or it wasn't. Whether or not somebody asks doesn't seem like 
it makes a moral difference. So just to be clear about what the issue is there is this, this may be one way of thinking about it. Like suppose, um, you know, somebody is, is ill and you have like the medicine that could help them and you don't give it to them. And then they find out like that you've had this medicine the whole time. They could justifiably be upset with you. Like, why didn't you give me this medicine? And it would be an inadequate response to say, "Well, you didn't ask." Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You could. Yeah, you would not be able to reply. Oh, you didn't ask because well, asking is not a moral uh, is not morally relevant. So, in conclusion, either prayers make no difference, or God seems to lack some moral perfection. And either way, that's a bad outcome, right? We think that God is morally perfect, so we don't want to say that God is lacking in moral perfection, but then the alternative is that for any petitionary prayer you can think of, it's not making any difference, in which case no petitionary prayers make a difference, and that's bad. Why should we not like that idea? (laughs) Yeah, so why should we be worried about petitionary prayers not making a difference? Yeah, so um, I think you could think of a few different reasons. One might be a sort of biblical sort of reason, like the picture of petitionary prayer given in Scripture seems to be one on which they make a difference. And so you might worry about, uh, well, like a number of different things, like Scripture painting a false picture of reality and our relation to uh, our, our relation to God. If it says, oh, your prayers make a difference and they don't make a difference, that seems bad. But then, setting aside the, the kind of scriptural picture, it just seems like there is a relationship that we have with God that depends on God responding to our requests. And if God is just sort of running things as God sees best, and what we ask for makes absolutely no difference, then it seems to cut us out of of the equation in a way that I guess you might feel like is worrisome. Do you, do you have thoughts on that? or It seems like there are people who are very happily sent, happy to say, well, petitionary prayer doesn't work. Oh, well. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, I think, obviously, as Christians, that seems to be a very important part of, and even though, he's, like you said, there's adoration and confession and thanksgiving and other types of prayer, we seem to be commanded over and over again to pray as if, our prayers are doing something. Yeah. So it would, it would, it does cause a lot of problems, um, for, yeah, for scripture or, uh, for our consistency of who God, understanding who God is. If we totally give up this idea that our prayers do something in the world. Right. Yeah. It strikes me that there's like, when you hear people say that God is cruel and stuff, like why does he command us to pray if he's not going to, give us what we're asking for. It's like he's just kind of making us, you know, I don't know how to describe what I'm talking about, but he's like a marionette or whatever. So, yeah, if we don't want to come to either of these conclusions, either that God is not perfectly good or that our prayers don't do anything, why should we reject this conclusion? Yeah, so I think there's one basic way to respond to the argument that I've, as I've given it. So the argument as I gave it had three premises in a conclusion. 
the first premise was that either God would have healed Lucy either way, or God only healed Lucy because Maggie prayed for it. You can't really reject that. That's just uh, just sort of logically obvious. Either one or the other of those is true. And then the second premise said that if God would have healed Lucy either way, then Maggie's prayer made no difference. Uh, and that just seems right to me. That if God is going to do something no matter what, then you're praying for it doesn't make a difference. Uh, so I don't think you want to reject premise two. So uh, if you're going to re- respond to an argument that has three premises and it's a valid argument and the first two premises seem true, then you have to say the third premise is false. Uh, that's, that's a simple logic lesson for, for people right there. <laughs> uh, so the third premise is this. It says that if God only healed Lucy because Maggie prayed for it, then God doesn't seem to be perfectly good. And remember the rationale for this was that God's healing Lucy is dependent on Maggie's asking God to heal Lucy, but whether somebody asks you to do something doesn't seem like a morally relevant difference. And Justin gave us that little anecdote where you have somebody sick and you have the medicine to cure them and you don't give it to them and they ask you why and you say, well, you didn't ask. And they say, that's not, a, that's not morally relevant. You should have given me the medicine because uh, you could have healed me. And, okay. So, but I think we should reject premise three. And there are a number of people who have given different accounts of why that kind of idea is, is not right. Why praying might be morally relevant. Uh, so I'm going to give like three different reasons that you might think that prayer or asking God to do something is morally relevant. Why that might be a morally relevant difference to God that people are asking him to do something. Uh, so here's, a, here's one. Uh, sometimes when somebody asks you to do something, that counts as a reason all by itself for you to do it. So we can think of requests themselves as reasons, separate from other reasons you might have to do something. And this can even be the case when you already know what the person wants or needs that they're asking you for. So sometimes, let me give you an example. Sometimes... Uh, I get up in the morning and around the same time as my wife and I know that she needs breakfast and, but I'm just like going about doing my stuff in the morning. But then she asks like, honey, can you make me breakfast? And that request, that specific request serves as an extra reason for me to go make her breakfast. Beyond the, the reason that I already had, which was, like, I can see that she hasn't eat yet, eaten yet, and I'm her husband and like to do nice things for her. Uh, and so the request is now a reason for me to go do that thing right now. And I go, you know, usually, hopefully, go do it. Uh, you know, and all of us are familiar with this sort of thing. If you've lived with someone, you've heard them say, can you do the dishes, please? You knew the dishes needed to be done, but when the person asked you, can you do the dishes, now that that request served as a extra reason for you to do them right now. So some people, uh, Daniel and Francis, Howard Snyder, and Alex Pruce in particular, appeal to this kind of uh, phenomenon to claim that when we make a request of God, 
that provides God with a reason to provide the thing that we're asking, beyond whatever other reasons God might have already had. So, one might, like, an important thing to recognize here is that when God, so take the healing Lucy, the, the Maggie and Lucy example, God already probably had some reasons to heal Lucy. Uh, it, was, it was already a, a good thing that, like, that Lucy would be healed. There were, there were some reasons in favor of it. But Maggie's asking God, Maggie's making a request of God that God heal Lucy would count on this view as an additional reason in favor of God's doing that. And maybe, in some cases, God didn't have enough reasons for it to be the rational thing for God to do, or conclusively rational, or something like that, for God to choose to heal Lucy. But because Maggie asked, that became now the conclusively rational or good choice to make. Okay, so that's one one reason you might think that prayer can make a moral difference. It can give somebody a good... Just asking somebody to do something can give them a good reason to do it. So essentially, there would be different goods that could uh, God could be bringing about. One including the healing, one not including the healing, and both are sort of equally good outcomes. But the prayer... Because of the, for all the other reasons of the relationship with God, that the prayer has with God, um, the relationship the prayer has with that other person, for all, for all those other reasons, God answering that prayer by bringing about the healing outcome will ultimately bring about more good and outweighing good because of the prayer. The prayer sort of tips in favor of the healing versus not healing. That's, that's one way you can think about it. And that's like an explicitly consequentialist or consequence-based way to, to put all this is you can think about God as summing up goods and evils. So the, so the good of healing Lucy, but maybe some bad results that might follow, and the, the evil of not healing Lucy, but maybe some compensatory goods that might come about, some lessons she might learn and some, her testimony and the way that might impact some other people. And it might be that they're roughly equal results, uh, but then the good of fulfilling Maggie's request, once Maggie prays, tips the balance. And so the fact that Maggie makes that request means that healing Lucy becomes the all things considered better course of action. Uh, has, it has more good consequences. That would be one way you could put it. But... There might be other ways of cashing out the idea. And we'll, I think we'll talk about that a little bit more in a, in a minute. So another thought that Eleanor Stump uh, has argued for is, is the idea that prayer is uh, good for establishing community. So Stump focuses on the idea that petitionary prayer is necessary for God to bring about friendship between God and humans. And she focuses on the idea that God desires friendship between us and God, but that bringing about such a friendship is a really tenuous proposition. So if you think about the idea of a friendship between people who are, between people for whom there's an immense discrepancy with like the, the power imbalance between them and the kinds of people they are. So like, I guess like, Maybe you could think of like a friendship between 
an emperor of a great nation and like a little toddler or something like that. It would be difficult for them to have a friendship that wasn't either overbearing, like the emperor overbearing on the part of the on on the toddler and sort of determining lots of things for the toddler, or on the other hand, the emperor just using his power to sort of serve the toddler's every need and sort of spoiling the toddler. And so I'm not going to give all the details of Stump's argument, but Stump argues that in order to avoid oppressing us with, his, with God's power or spoiling us in these kinds of ways, that the institution of petitionary prayer is put in place and that this actually protects those outcomes from occurring but allows for friendship between God and humans. Uh, so if you want to go see the details of, of Stump's argument, you can see her paper, uh, what is it called, just Petitionary Prayer? Yeah, I think it is, and it's in American Philosophical Quarterly. Yeah, it's a 1979 paper, and it's it was sort of an early groundbreaking paper in the like contemporary literature on Petitionary Prayer. Um, so a similar kind of argument, Michael Murray and Kurt Myers... They argue that God's requiring certain goods to depend on petitionary prayer brings it about that uh, there is interdependence in the Christian community. It's not so much that petitionary prayer brings about community between God and humans, but community between humans and other humans. Uh, And this is the kind of unity you might think that Jesus was praying for us to have in the Garden of Gethsemane, that this was like, it's very important to uh, the very heart of Jesus that the church be as unified as can be, and that the whole point of the institution of petitionary prayer, or at least a very, a very important part of it, is that uh, it brings us together, because it makes us depend on each other in important ways. So you can imagine a world without petitionary prayer where God just brings about the best outcome for everybody and doesn't require that we ask anything. You might think would be a world where we have a emotionally, where where we're much more emotionally remote from God and each other. Because even though God is bringing about great outcomes uh, for us, he's like the parent uh, who sort of gives their child all kinds of nice things, but doesn't ever let their child come to them and ask. There, there's a distance there, right? And similarly, there would be no need for the Christian community to tell each other what's going on in each other's lives, ask for prayer, reach out and try and help each other or bear each other's burdens in the way that we do when we pray for each other. Uh, so that, those are some reasons to think that Prayer is morally, re- petitionary prayer is morally relevant because it has the result, the, the interdependence between people and the community between humans and God is there. That wouldn't be otherwise. So then, one last suggestion Richard Swinburne argues that it's a morally good thing for human beings to exercise responsibility, to just to be responsible for things. And petitionary prayer, he says, is a means for humans to exercise moral responsibility. The thought is supposed to be, I guess, that when Maggie prays to God, please heal Lucy, 
And then that prayer is makes a difference in Lucy's being healed, because Lucy wouldn't have been healed otherwise, say. Then Maggie is at least partially responsible. And that's a good thing. So God lets things depend on petitionary prayers because that lets humans exercise more responsibility and it's a good thing for more for people to be more responsible in general. One I think helpful analogy here that Swinburne uses in, in some of his books is this. He says like imagine a father with a younger son and an older son and the father gives the older son uh the the privilege of um babysitting the younger son. That's in a way like an honor to be given that responsibility. It's uh, in a number of ways a good thing for the older son to be given that responsibility and and to have the opportunity to exercise that responsibility. But what it consists in to have that responsibility is for the good of the younger child to depend in some way on what the older child does without the father interfering, like standing over his shoulder all the time. And so then the thought here is that Swinburne says, like, prayer is one way in which God does that with us. Mm -hmm. By making it the case that um, God limits the ways in which God helps us, depending on whether we pray for that kind of help, that puts, um, that gives us more responsibility for each other's well-being, basically. And you might notice that some of these suggestions are not unrelated and certainly not inconsistent. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you imagine a world without petitionary prayer, you're imagining a world where people aren't exercising this kind of responsibility for each other, and also a world where, arguably, the kind of community that we have uh, bearing one another's burdens is removed as well. So the point that Murray and Myers make about prayer, about petitionary prayer being necessary for interdependence in the Christian community seems arguably to be related to Swinburne's point about uh, prayer being a means for increasing human responsibility, our responsibility for each other. So all of that sounds really good to me. Um, I'm wondering if there's any drawbacks to thinking that way. Yeah, so yeah, so I said we should reject the premise that uh that tells us that prayer is not morally relevant. And I, I gave you some reasons why you might think prayer is morally relevant. But yeah, what's what might be a worry. It's one worry that might come up is that these kinds of prayers work sort of like magic. So if you pray the right kind of prayer for example, one that gives God a good reason and it increases community between you and God and other people and uh, increases your responsibility or something like that. So sort of like has the, it uh, has the right mixture of all these features or something. Then it seems like, well, maybe it'll compel God by his nature being perfectly good to answer it. And if your prayer fails in these things, it's just like, it's a bad prayer, then God won't be moved at all. So it's, it might seem like what you have is a recipe book for compelling God to do what you want that looks sort of like witchcraft. Like, you just have to say the right kinds of words, and 
you know, don't screw it up. Say say the the good ones that are compelling, not the bad ones that aren't compelling. And if you can do it right, then you sort of force God to answer your prayer. Okay, so what should we say about that? Uh, I, I guess do you guys have any thoughts about this? You might think you can kind of run a reductio argument against this objection by just taking an ordinary human case where you get somebody to give you something by asking for it. It seems like, a, you know, a parallel objection would go like this. Like, well, asking people for things uh, is like witchcraft because you're like, in asking them, you're giving them the right combination of reasons that will bring it about that they give you what you ask for. And that's, that seems like clearly wrong. Like, that's not witchcraft. That's just how the world works. That's how interpersonal interactions work. By asking for things, you give people reasons to act in certain ways. And sometimes in doing that, you bring it about that they act in certain ways. And so you might think this, say the same thing about our making requests of God. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think, I find that pretty compelling. I think the worry about the case with God is still maybe somewhat more troublesome. And it, it depends on what you, in part on what you think about God's freedom. Uh, and whether God is able to do otherwise in any given situation than than what God in fact does. Uh, so this is a really thorny, other huge topic, uh, and it's not one that I think we're going to be able to answer today. So I can report that some people, like some a lot of smart theologians and philosophers, have thought that for any given situation where God acts that God doesn't have the ability to do otherwise. Uh, so I, I brought this quote from C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain, where he, I think, pretty aptly describes this sort of view. He says, Whatever human freedom means, divine freedom cannot mean indeterminacy between alternatives and choice of one of them. Perfect goodness can never debate about the end to be obtained and perfect wisdom cannot debate about the means most suited to achieve it. The freedom of God consists in the fact that no cause other than himself produces his acts, and no external obstacle impedes them. That his own goodness is the root from which they all grow, and his own omnipotence the air in which they all flower. And that's, I think, a good description of of view about God, where God doesn't have the ability to do otherwise than what God does, but that, but that God is still free in the sense that matters, namely that no one else is determining God's actions. God is the one who's determining them. Yeah, so should we be worried about the magic case? Because if that is true about God's freedom, then it might still be different than the person case uh, where I can give somebody really compelling reasons to do something and they do it, but it might be true of them that they still could have done otherwise, uh, but not true of God because God is compelled to do, by, to do whatever he does by being a perfectly good, perfectly rational being. Uh-huh. He can't just choose to do a foolish thing because he's perfect. So one thing you might think is that God, in some circumstances, could do more than one option because there's not a single best option. So um, some of our conversation today has seemed to be predicated on the idea that God is like tallying up 
the goods and evils, I kind of talked about this earlier, the goods and evils for any given course of action and sort of uh, calculating the best overall course of action to take given how the, the like weight of each good and evil for each, each course of action. He's, he's sort of just a utility calculator. But it might very well be the case that there's no single best course of action to take in any given, at any given time. That there are, there's a multi-way tie for lots of single best courses of action. Uh, so this, this gets talked about in the philosophical literature that when God decides to create, there might be no best possible world to create. But then even w- once God has created a world, it might be that at any given time, there's no best course of action for God to, to take. And I think it's important that that can take many different forms, right? Yeah. So uh, one kind of no best option scenario is like you mentioned where there's a multiple equally best. Another another kind is when there are multiple incommensurate options. Yeah, so, like, so there could be goods that you can't compare with each other, like certain aesthetic goods with certain moral goods, or I guess some people talk about incommensurable moral goods too. Mm-hmm. And then a third way in which this can happen, and this is probably the most discussed one in the contemporary literature, is maybe there's no best possible world in the sense that for any world you pick, there's always infinitely many better ones. And mm-hmm. just that there's no top. And so God just kind of has to arbitrarily pick a good enough world, yeah. something like that. So there's a lot to, to be said for the idea that God is not just a utility calculator. And that uh, we are providing God with morally relevant reasons by praying, but that that's not going to just determine God's course of action. And I guess one other thing to add is that even if it turned out that we could rationally compel God to answer our prayers by praying the right kind of prayer, in almost every situation we would ever be in, we wouldn't be in a position to know what was the prayer that would rationally compel God to do something? Like, when you go and you ask God for something, we generally seem to be in a position ahead of time of being uncertain whether God is going to be compelled by your prayer. So in that sense, it's not at all like magic. Uh, Even if we were rationally compelling God, it wouldn't be like casting a magic spell. It it would just be getting getting lucky sometimes. Yeah, so a a quick summary, I guess, is... uh, or a quick answer to the question, why should we always pray if God's just going to do what's best, is that prayer is part of the equation of what's best. And uh, as like an addendum to that, there might not be any single answer to what's best. Uh, prayer makes a difference, I think, is, is the simple view of what we're of what we're kind of trying to say here that's the short version of the, the, short, the short version but yeah all right thank you so much for joining us for episode one of this new series does prayer work once again if you have any questions for us at mhu we would be more than happy to answer them here on the podcast or just uh personally via email you can email us at mercyhouseu at gmail.com And if you're interested in any of these sources that we've been referencing throughout the podcast, some of the people that we've been reading, we're going to put up a document that summarizes what we've been reading to prepare for these conversations on our SoundCloud. And we'll try and get it up on the notes on the various podcast platforms that we've been using as well.
So until next time. Thank you.